as Russ makes his way to the choir loft, I want to give you just a heads up. He is he has been reading scripture within the body of his sermon during this sermon series for Eastertide. And if you will remember, if you have been here previously um, for the last few opportunities of worship, the character of Martha has shown up. She showed up on uh, Maundy Thursday at the Last Supper. She showed up on Easter Sunday morning at the empty tomb. She showed up the Sunday after Easter uh, in the upper room with the disciples when they met. She so desperately wanted to show up in Emmaus last week, but unfortunately she was with the youth in Black Mountain. <laughs> Several people have asked me what I'm doing with these, and I don't know yet, but I feel like there's a collection of these Martha accounts coming from me. And so uh, she will probably go back, because the Emmaus story is probably one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I've been to that place, Emmaus, when we visited the Holy Land. I met the risen Christ there, honestly, truly, tangibly. Felt like I met the risen Christ there, so I feel like Martha needs to be there too. But for today, uh, Martha will show up when Russ finishes preaching, and I'm not gonna say, this is Martha. Just know that I'm speaking uh, a version of how I think Martha might have interpreted the text and the story for today. This season of Eastertide, we are telling the stories that the early church told. And by the word story, we're not just referring to some kind of compact tale like Once Upon a Time, even though the stories we told the last two weeks had that kind of story quality uh, about it. By story, though, we mean something broader. The communicating of a truth that resonates so much within a community that it gathers a kind of center of gravity. In sharing that truth over and over, it becomes more than a tale. It becomes mythic. People start talking about that story as belief. This series began with the story of resurrection, the founding story of Christian faith, which is more than a tale about what happened on Easter Sunday morning. That story gathered mass as it was told by Jesus' followers, and it became the heart of their understanding of God. The episode with Thomas in the upper room we called the story of belief itself. And then last week's story was the breaking of bread. We called the breaking of bread with all the implications for communion and equally sacred sharing of our tables with our friends. As the Jesus movement continued to gather steam, as their stories began to hold a defined shape, a distinctive Christianity began to emerge, moving away from its Jewish origins. Today's story makes clear this movement is beginning to stand on its own, separate from its Jewish history. As my friend, the late Dr. Bill Hull says it, Whereas one gained entry into the old Israel by circumcision, sacrifice, and faithfulness to the law, one may enter the new Israel only by Jesus. Such salvation is not a static possession, but a dynamic pilgrimage in and out. Such salvation is not a static possession, but a dynamic pilgrimage in and out 
to find the pasture of life which Jesus will abundantly provide. Not a static possession, a dynamic pilgrimage in and out. What interesting words. Today's story is the story of abundant life. After his death, the followers of Jesus increasingly focused their understanding of spiritual life not around a series of rules, not around sacred scripture, not around a specific place or practice of worship, but around the person of Jesus. His way is our way, they said. His life makes our life abundant. The person and the way of Jesus ignited the Christian movement, not some dogma they believed, not an adherence to a set of beliefs, not a defense of some inerrant scripture. None of that was part of their belief. It was Jesus himself, his life, his example. In Jesus, they found such a joyful expression of how to live It set a brand new movement of religion on fire. Now that we have 20 centuries of Christian doctrine behind us, though, it may be hard for us to really comprehend what Jesus meant to those first followers. Christian orthodoxy was defined through a series of official councils that were convened in the 4th century by the Emperor Constantine. And for the Next 1,700 years, the church has focused on the lines that were drawn by those councils, on their so-called right-thinking orthodoxy. But Jesus had shown his friends an entirely different way altogether, a way apart from slavish dependence on any right-thinking. Jesus' way was about right-acting. Yet so much of Christianity today is still defined by those voices who loudly celebrate the insiderness of being Christian, while at the same time condemning everybody else, the insiders and the outsiders. And if that's what it's all about, it will be difficult to understand the kind of liberating joy, the kind of spiritual freedom Jesus offered and still offers As we saw last week, the table fellowship of Jesus was central to his ministry. And these were not gatherings of some insider group. All were welcome at his table. There was something breathtaking about that for those disciples. Look who Jesus has invited. Look what we're experiencing here. Something entirely different than they experienced in the practice of their religion to this point. In an environment that so easily leaned into the legalism of keeping the law, of religious rule keeping, of being part of the right group, the freedom of Jesus' welcome must have been almost too good to be true. Can you imagine being truly set free from the idea that in order to be right or righteous, You had to believe certain things. You had to follow certain rules. You had to believe the right things about Scripture. Can you imagine that to be understood as being right or righteous, you had to be baptized in a certain way, profess your faith with just the right words, go to the right church, 
belong to the right political party, reject all the right people. Oh, wait. You see how quickly you can move from first century right into 2023? All that religious piety, all the arrogance of being in, the hypocrisy of knowing who is out, it's still with us. I wonder how it would change the church today if we dared to say about Jesus what the writer named John dared to say about him all those years ago. Now, I want you to hear John's words, but I need to give you the background, give you the context. In the preceding chapter, John chapter 9, he tells that Jesus healed a man who had been blind from birth, and the religious leaders would not have it. They wouldn't believe it. They could not accept it because Jesus had broken one of their sacred rules in doing so. You see, he had dared to work on the Sabbath. It was like healing on Sunday. Imagine that. It infuriated them. We have our rules. And so they kept asking, who did this? And the man kept saying, Jesus did it. I once was blind, but now I see. But they wouldn't believe him. So they asked the man's parents, is this your son? And was he really blind from birth? And they say, he was, this is our son. He was really blind from birth. It just goes on and on. But the religious leaders will not accept this man's great joyous freedom because Jesus had worked outside the parameters of their understanding of orthodoxy. So in today's text, when Jesus talks about thieves and robbers, bandits and strangers, He's talking about them, the religious leaders. It's a critique of their religiosity. Now, I believe it's not anti-Semitic to call out these religious leaders if we can allow the same critique of ourselves. And I am afraid we have far exceeded the self-righteousness of a few Pharisees. Virtually the entire global Christian church has wrapped itself in the kind of legalism the Gospel of John is challenging. We have our rules. We know what's right. In response to their narrow self-righteousness, John has Jesus say this to the religious leaders. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way, is a thief or a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not, do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. 
I am the gate. Christians know the metaphor of Jesus as the good shepherd, but there is another equally important metaphor in this text that we may have overlooked. It's one I think we need to explore this day. Jesus is the gate, not the gatekeeper, mind you. Not like the warden who rewards those who come in and pronounces judgment on all those who are out there. In this bold declaration of religious freedom, Jesus is the gate itself, open to all coming and going. Jesus is openness. Come and go as you please. What abundance there must be in that kind of freedom. In the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, that powerful spiritual story of bondage and liberation, when old Red, who has served 40 years for his conviction of murder, when Red is finally paroled, he is lost. After 40 years inside, he has no idea what to do with that freedom. It's frightening to him. In the supermarket where he's working, he asked the young supervisor permission to go to the bathroom. He's had to ask permission for 40 years. And then in a poignant monologue, Red says soberly, no way I'm going to make it on the outside. All I do anymore is think of ways to break my parole so maybe they'll send me back in. Terrible thing to live in fear. All I want is to be back where things make sense inside, where I won't have to be afraid all the time. Afraid of freedom. He was afraid to come and go as you please. The Christian church is at an inflection point in history. I really believe this. All the signs indicate there's change in the air, and in the face of that change, the fear of our strange new world, and it is a strange new world, let's all admit that. But in the face of that, some voices are clinging to the past. Make it the way it used to be. Let's go back. We need to stay on the inside that we know. We've got to conserve, constrain, contain all those dangerous ideas and people out there. We've got to preserve the institution. Let's go back inside. In a bitter critique of the institution that the church has become, I read this morning an article that Dr. Susan Shaw wrote, and she concludes by saying, we must have not a reformation, but a transformation, not a revival, but a resurrection of the radical politics of love at the core of Jesus' life and teaching. The church as we know it may need to die to be reborn as the revolutionary embodiment of God's love in the world. The church may need to die. Hard words. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. The only way to go forward is not being afraid to explore. I am the gate. Come and go as you please. 
In this challenging moment, the old fortified walls of Christian orthodoxy are being challenged. The only way to survive may be to let them be exploded. And as we move in and out of our orthodox understanding, God will show us a new way. Like a new way to think about that word salvation that has so much churchy baggage. As my friend Bill Hull says it, it's not a static possession, but a dynamic pilgrimage in and out to find the abundant life Jesus will provide. To find that true abundance, you may need to do some exploring of your own. Let me ask you, what are the the constraints of your world? To what inside do you have a tendency to want to always go back? Religious views? Cultural biases? Political prejudices? Family conflicts? Salvation is not found inside any of those worlds, but in being free to explore the wide world. Come and go as you please. There is an amazing liberation in this text. Jesus is the gate, the means of all freedom. The Bible says, as Dan pointed out this morning, for freedom. Christ has set us free. Yet the church, I'm afraid, has rarely experienced that freedom. So afraid of we are we of what is out there. The abundant life Jesus offers is a life of freedom, the joy of not being constrained, the liberation to explore, the true freedom to find God both inside the world we know and outside in entirely new and different places. It is a strange new world, but do not be afraid. Jesus offers us complete freedom, abundant life. So come and go as you please. May it be so. Amen. Sometimes I really think his creative genius was lost on all of us. He spoke in metaphors and rhymes and riddles so much. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. Well, is it like this or that? Because they seem to have a lot of differences. So frankly, everybody was usually just walking around kind of mumbling under their breath and behind his back. So what did he just say? And what did he mean? I wasn't there the day he talked in the riddle of, I am the gate. The gate? I can picture their faces listening in now. Their brows furrowed, their mouths hanging open just a little, trying to seem engaged, yet totally clueless. I get being the gate that welcomes people in. But it's the idea that that same gate is also an option to let people out. That's what kind of got me when they were telling me all about it. So does that make him more like a bouncer? Checking people's credentials to let them in, throwing them out when they are not behaving? Except that just doesn't sound like Jesus at all. But when I got to thinking about it, 
He didn't say he was the gatekeeper. He said he was the gate. So if this is the metaphor he chose when he wanted us to know about abundance and fullness to this life, all I know is he was the kind of gate you would want to have around. Abundantly welcoming, gracefully forgiving. Because everybody was always moving in and out of the flow of the way of Jesus. Who could possibly sustain the way of life he was calling for? Everyone needs a break every once in a while. People think the WWJD, what would Jesus do gimmick of the 1990s was begun in the 1990s. Do you not realize that we started that? It wasn't long after he died and we were all like, well, what would Jesus do? And every time we realized, oh, that's what Jesus would do, we would find ourselves stepping outside the gate because we couldn't bring ourselves to do what he would do or say what he would say or act the way he would act or forgive the way he would forgive or love the way he would love. And that's when we became real grateful that Jesus was the gate, the way of freedom. Because you knew there would be days when you couldn't love the way Jesus loved or forgive the way he forgave. And on, that, on those occasions, you needed him to let you back in after you got over yourself. You knew there would come a time when you would have to say, I can't do it today. And I wanted him as the gate to let me, to tell me that I was still loved even on the days when I did not get it right or on the days when I would not even attempt to get it right. He was a gate that understood the seasons of life. He was a gate that understood mood swings. He was the gate that understood the highs and the lows, the mountains and the valleys of everyone's life. He was always providing abundantly welcoming words to let us in. And he always spoke grace when we had to step out for a while. He let us come and go as we pleased. So the challenge became to make sure that the as we pleased would be what would actually have pleased him. For me personally, he knew that I knew that my role was primarily in the kitchen, doing the ordinary daily tasks that keep a household running. I knew my place. I liked my place. I was good at my place. But when he was the gate a whole new world opened up for me, welcoming me to a table with his closest friends, asking about my opinion, me, little old Martha. He found ways to open up the world for me that allowed me to get out of the kitchen just a bit and be a part of his bigger work. But now that he's gone, we can hang on to this riddle of a metaphor that he gave us and keep looking for him to be our gate. Or perhaps we could stand in his place, offering abundant welcome and gracious mercy 
as people come and go. Because he was the gate for me, I shall be the gate for you.